The word innovation is not often associated with government departments. Their slow-moving style is often the antithesis of the Silicon Valley model of rapid product development and pivoting in response to new data. But that's changing, and it's being led by my guest today, Dr. Sarah Pearson. She's Chief Innovation Officer and Chief Scientist at the Innovation Exchange, which sits within the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, aka DFAT. She's disrupting government. She's injecting her broad experience of scientific collaboration and commercialization to retrofit DFAT as an entrepreneurial leader. She wants to empower our neighbors in the Asia Pacific region with more than just grants. She wants to help build businesses in the hope of driving truly sustainable development. And that's what the Good Future podcast is all about. My name is John Treadgold, and I'm asking the big questions about the future of sustainable business, the new economy, and how your investment decisions, no matter how big or small, can have an impact. I got so much out of this conversation with Dr. Pearson. She's had a remarkable career, and her insights are so valuable. She started as a physicist, gave her a solid scientific foundation, and it's left its mark on all of her work. She spent some time as a consultant at McKinsey, adding a very practical layer of business smarts and an appreciation for the importance of commercialization to scale the best ideas. But it was the world of innovation, and more specifically the field of open innovation, that really got her attention. And she's become a leading practitioner of how organizations can make the most of the rapid pace of change exploit opportunities, but most importantly, of sharing their discoveries, of building an innovation ecosystem where collaboration acts as rocket fuel for growth and prosperity. We talked about the challenges of driving change in a big and lumbering government department and about the huge opportunities that lie in unlocking the entrepreneurial potential of our neighbours in the Asia-Pacific region. Please do enjoy this conversation with Dr. Pearson. I got so much out of it and I'd love to hear your thoughts. Please do leave me a review on iTunes, which is the best way to get this podcast out to more people, or drop me a line on my website, johntreadgold.com. And with that all said, nothing left to do but dive in. Here we go. I guess the theme there is often going to be innovation, something that far too many people have in their job titles. But for you, it's central and warranted. And that's the common thread I see through your career. Can you take us back to early on? Where did this focus come from? Well, it actually came subliminally. When I was doing my PhD in particle physics at Oxford, we were using these things called transputers, which are parallel processing microprocessors. Now, at the time, I knew that they were a spin-out from Southampton University, so I was aware that this was some technology that had been developed in a university and we were trying it out. But I had no concept of innovation. I had no idea what innovation was. And um, as I tell people, I think it's such a shame my supervisor didn't say, hey, we're working on commercialization and innovation here. There were two experiments going on at the same time. There was ours, uh, which had 
500 physicists from 12 countries, which is, you know, innovation in its best, in its element, because you're doing very collaborative and globally. But anyway, the other experiment uh, was using different microprocessors, which was the Sun Microsystems processors. <laughs> mm. And we all know who won that battle. It, it certainly wasn't transputers. I'm sure no one's ever heard of them. <laughs> but... It's interesting when you you, know, you hear about the Betamax and VHS wars. Well, Bera was involved in a war for who was going to take over high power. And I saw this poster for doing a master's in medical physics. And I thought, oh, my God, that's what I should have done. And that's that impact piece. You know, it was that desire to have an impact. So to do more than the intellectual challenge, which was you know, why I did particle physics, but to use that for an intellectual challenge. So... I think I've always had it in my genes that I want to have an impact. I want to make a difference. And being able to use science to make a difference, science technology to make a difference is you know, such an incredible privilege. Uh, and so that's where I guess the love for innovation came. And then later on, uh, I found myself working at McKinsey and working with high tech companies who were trying to be innovative. So working on from a you know market assessment and competitive analysis sort of perspective and strategy, co-authored a chapter of a book about precincts, actually, about how you bring all the actors in innovation together so that you can have that, well, the serendipitous moments and the translation of knowledge so you can have impact. So I really enjoyed that. And then ended up as a, an academic and did research into breast and brain cancer di diagnosis, again, because I wanted to have an impact. And that's what innovation is. It's having ideas and then using them to create an impact. And so it goes on. But yeah, the focus really has always been that I want to have an impact. I get out of bed wanting to make a difference. I have this thing that I don't want to get on my deathbed and think, what difference did I make? Yeah, so it seems you've gone from academia to the private sector, seeing the need for commercialization. Where do you feel you can have the biggest impact? Do you, do you see them as distinct? Look, I feel so fortunate to be in the place I am now because I can have an impact in so many ways, you know, through the day job and not the day job. I mean, for the last... I don't know, maybe it's been six or seven years I've been on boards and panels and committees as well because I've built up that experience across all parts of the e ecosystem. And that's where I feel like I have my biggest impact is because I have got that experience across a range of areas. So from my perspective, I'm loving the impact I can have now, which is you know building the innovation infrastructure around people who can then have a big impact through their individual ideas. You're chief of innovation, chief scientist at the yes. Innovation Exchange, Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, not a place to normally hear too much about commercialization and innovation. How are you applying <laughs> you know, this background to aid and development and, and trade? Yeah, well, so I was involved with DFAT, well, ever since the Innovation Exchange was set up, because of my open innovation background, I was asked to give them some ideas about how they might set up a, an innovation lab at DFAT. I talked open innovation, gave them a bunch of ideas, some of which they put in place. And then Julie Bishop, the then foreign minister, put me on her international reference group with a bunch of other other people, about 15 of us from all around the world. We gave them various ideas. Open innovation was obviously a big part of that. Another big part for me was building the innovation ecosystem infrastructure in the region, because I reckon, yeah, you can pour money into big programs, but there's also people in on the ground in country that have really great ideas about how to solve their social challenges and a lot of those can actually be done through a commercial model you know it might be a, a not-for-profit or a for-purpose but still you know, it can be something that's sustainable and grows makes money and then does more so that's my big excitement i have is how do we get innovation into the hands of people in our in our region so in the indo-pacific so the, and this is through the aid model we've been doing that through this program called scaling frontier innovation where we have invested in about 14 social entrepreneurs 
the latest thing I was at was where we brought 19 incubators and accelerators from across the region. I think it was something like 11 countries were represented there. And we're trying to build their capability. So connecting them with best practice incubation and, and uh, acceleration in the social impact space. And I'm very excited about that because that helps you to help hundreds, if not thousands of startups and small companies across the region who will then build sustainable models to solve social challenges. We're also doing a bit of a brokerage. So how do you connect investors and investees and also building capability of investors in the region? And then we have another project, and this is just the IXC, another project in Vietnam called Oz for Innovation, where we're looking at innovation policy, uh, we're looking at scenario analysis and strategic road mapping, um, we're looking at other opportunities for building their innovation infrastructure. And this is not just social entrepreneurship, this is the whole of the innovation sphere, so from large business to small business to startups, which could be social or pure deep tech. So we're doing that, but then the rest of DFAT is doing a bunch of other really fantastic work too. And the, and the thing I'm really thrilled about is a lot of it has a central theme of the gender lens. So how do we encourage women into entrepreneurship and investment and innovation? There's a program called Investing in Women, where we're actually working with large companies in the region to help them to see the benefit of having better engagement with women employees, better processes and approaches in place to encourage more of that as well as helping venture capital groups to put in place gender lens investing approaches and setting up networks of business women to encourage more women into, into business. And then we've got an emerging impact investment fund, which will invest in a fund of funds, again, to fund you know, some SMEs in terms of their growth. We've got another program around the missing middle because there's a reasonable amount of money around for microfinancing, but what after that? There's just a whole range of programs that we're doing in that entrepreneurship, innovation, ecosystem, infrastructure piece, which I'm really excited about. That was one of the things that IXC took up. Another thing IXC took up on the Open Innovation Front was this challenge, the global challenge methodology. So we've run, in the three and a half years we've been going, we've run 10 global challenges, a number of them in collaboration with the private sector. So for instance, Google Impact Challenge, we've collaborated with them. MIT Solve and Atlassian, we collaborated with them. Um, and that's led to us sourcing about 3,000 ideas globally. We've, we've funded about 148 of those that are represented in 56 countries. So that's something I'm really proud of. We've funded a lot of early stage ideas to get people in country uh, to work on solutions to their, their challenges. So there's, there's that stuff. That's all in aid. But then we've also now had to move from aid to foreign policy, aid and trade and the way that we do business. So taking the lessons that we've learned uh, in aid and applying those and others, other lessons from other parts of the innovation sphere into how we actually do policy and programs, in, like I say, in, in foreign policy, aid and trade. So that's an exciting journey to be going on. You know, how do you apply human centered design? How do you apply open innovation? How do you apply co-creation? To policy development? What has innovation got to do with foreign policy? I actually think it's got a huge amount to do with foreign policy. If you look at the economies around us in the Indo-Pacific, they're pretty much all wanting to leapfrog over the old models of manufacturing and getting themselves into Industry 4.0. And you know that's all through innovation and science and technology. So if we can help them do that, then that's, from my perspective, a real foreign policy piece as well. Uh, so there's you know innovation in how you develop policy, and then there's the policy uh, or the approach itself of, of going out and helping countries. So I take a bit of a, in some senses, a bit of an ambassadorial soft power role as well. 
to go and talk to ministers overseas and talk about things I know about innovation and innovation policy and innovation practice. And that helps to build trust, which I think then opens the doors for you to do a whole lot of other things. So I really enjoy that piece. Yeah, you've certainly got a dance card that's full. And I think the thing that sort of comes to mind there first is it it almost sounds like this is disrupting government, disrupting foreign aid. And I imagine it's quite different to the culture that's there already. Has there been a push there or have people internally been wanting change? How have you navigated that? Yeah, look, it is disruptive. But I think it's Deloitte talk about driving change from the edge, how you get on the edge of a a company and you build the change at the edge and before you know it, the rest of the company has been drawn into it. And that's certainly what I experienced at Cadbury. So we set up an open innovation uh, lab at Cadbury and we were working globally across all of the the company. And after time, when we'd actually demonstrated success, people were coming to us and wanting us to help them. And that's certainly what we're finding at DFAT. So it's whenever you're driving change, it's good to start with a bit of a under the radar pilot, if you like, get some success and then demonstrate and show that success. And that draws people in. So I'd say, yes, it is paradigm shifting. And there's still a long way to go. And some of the bigger ideas I've got will take me a long time to influence people to to do that. But having said that, I think the very fact that when I arrived 10 months ago, I started to change the narrative. And the narrative was innovation isn't about the innovation exchange. Innovation is something that we can all do. So my whole narrative was innovation at DFAT. And that's really opened the door for a lot of people. I've also changed the narrative that innovation is paradigm shifting and has to be big. Innovation is really change that outperforms the norm. And that's a quote that someone from ThinkPlace gave me, and I really like it. It can be in the way we do work. You know, if if you can see a better way to do your job and it outperforms the way you're doing it now, well, that's innovation. So I've made it more accessible to people across DFAT. And we're finding people are coming to us left, right and centre, wanting us to help. They, you know, want us to be on um, advisory groups and panels for programmes and projects that are working in DFAT. And some of these are change programmes, so making sure that innovation is in these change programmes, as well as trade programmes and aid programmes. People are coming to us saying, can you come and be part of our teams? Come and sit with us and, and help us understand innovation. We've started to build a toolkit. We're very early days. We're building a toolkit of innovation tools, and we're just about to start to talk to people about okay, these are the tools. This is what design thinking is. This is what human-centered design is. This is what open innovation is. This is what it means for you and how you can do it. So we're finding a lot of people are really interested in that and want to to learn more. And it actually fits in well with a change process going across the whole of Australian Commonwealth at the moment. So there's the APS review that David Thode is, is leading. And then I was just at a meeting yesterday where PM&C were talking about uh, the fact that they're actually building a toolkit of innovation tools which will then be shared across all the public service. So we're joining in with work that's happening across the public service, as well as getting a lot of interest from DFAT. And here's an example. I decided that we needed to get DFAT to own innovation. You know, I think people thought, okay, innovation exchange, bright, shiny stuff, that's where it all happens. But we really needed DFAT to take it on. So we set up two structures to help with that. One was an innovation advisory group, which is at a sort of a higher management level where they do a little bit of governance, if you like, a little bit of advising us about what we could do and where we could operate best. But we also set up an innovation champions network, which was open to anyone who wanted to be an innovation champion or was interested in innovation. And I thought, oh, I don't know, I'm a little bit worried about this because what if nobody wants to be a champion? (laughs) But we've got over 50 champions in over 17 countries, and that was within a few weeks. And then on the science side of things, I'm going to set up a science community of practice as soon as I get a moment to breathe. And as a lot of people already contacted me saying they want to be part of that. So 
I would say there's actually a lot of interest in it. There's a lot of trying new things there, a lot of experimentation. And with that comes the reality of failure. It's mm. been embraced by Silicon Valley, fail and iterate. And you've talked about there is that change. But is that an issue, that tolerance for failing and learning when, you know, government mm. departments probably want it tested before they even go for it? Yeah, look, it is a challenge. And I wouldn't want to paint, you know, rosy pictures of everything's fabulous and everyone's doing it because they're not. But I'm just being surprised at how many people are interested uh, we've still got a long way to go. But in terms of that, people being concerned about risk, risk aversion, they're absolutely mm. in the public service because we're using public money. You know, this is taxpayers' money. So there's a lot of emphasis on making sure that what we do is value for money. And I think that's ingrained in the public service culture. Obviously, as well ingrained is that we are working with ministers. And, you know, the way life is at the moment for ministers, it's pretty challenging if you fail. It's pretty, you know, you get slugged so you know the public need to back off a bit too and and allow that experimentation there have been a couple of brave ministers who've said out loud and in the public that they will support failure now we're really very fortunate in DFAT in that we have an awesome secretary Frances Adamson who gets all of this and she gets that actually the biggest risk is not taking a risk I gave a talk mm. to our middle managers the other day about how quickly the world is changing and examples are I think at the moment, global data is doubling every, I think it's every 30 days. By 2020, I think it is, or maybe it's 2030, it will double every 12 hours. And so how on earth do you cope with that? And then if you look at the uptake of technology, I think it was the radio took something like 38 years, the TV or the radio, I can't remember which one, took about 38 years to reach 50 million people. Angry Birds took you know several days. <laughs> so technology is developing and then being absorbed so much more rapidly than, ever, than it ever was. And so you can't actually do business the way you used to do business. It just isn't an option. The biggest risk is actually to think you can do business the way you were doing business. And in fact, all around the world, we're finding that the public are jumping in. They're going, we can see a gap and we see the government can't move fast enough to get into this gap. So we're going to jump in and we're going to build businesses to fill this gap. And so government needs to know how to react to that as well. So I think the biggest risk is that, that you, you don't take any risks, you don't do any change. But yeah, like I say, we've got a fantastic secretary who gets that. She's set up, we, we have a chief risk officer, which is a, a relatively recent appointment. They're addressing risk. We had a panel on failure where the secretary, myself and George Minas talked about some failure we'd experienced. We had hundreds of people turn up to listen to that. And then we've got the secretary to do quarterly podcasts where she will interview innovators across DFAT. She always brings up risk there uh, and she always in her talks comforts people by saying, hey, look, I will back you to take risks and I will back you if you fail. As long as we learn, I will back you. So, you know, I think uh, we're making a lot of progress. And, and from that focus on on kind of the policy in, in Canberra to shifting on the ground, you know, you mentioned Frontier Innovators as mm. being a project. Is there innovation then on the ground in terms of something like impact measurement, which is obviously a big issue on the evolving kind of impact investing field? In aid, it was sort of, I guess, measurement and evaluation was the terminology. Mm. Is, there, is there a shift yeah. there? So I think within the overall impact investing sphere there is. We have invested in the Global Innovation Fund. And one of the reasons for that was because it has this fabulous methodology for measuring proposed impact even before you make an investment. More people are investing in that, including the private sector, because they see it as such a valuable thing to be doing. Something I would love to see us doing more of is, yes, we do the monitoring and evaluation as we go along in a project. And yes, we do 
evaluation at the end of a project. But I would love to see us move to a point where we monitor and evaluate as we go and then pivot as necessary. Now, of course, that's going to mean that we manage projects and project delivery very differently and that we have to have contracts set up differently. But that's a bit of a dream of mine that we should be able to do that. And and we do that to a degree, but I just love to make it a bit more mainstream. That's right, bringing in the uh, Silicon Valley methodology. But I guess, yeah, you need stakeholders and donors that are as flexible as you want to be on the ground and in the moment. Yes, yeah, which they are. It's just a question of the systems and processes catching up. And talking about stakeholders, partnerships are clearly central, clearly important. Should the private sector be engaging more closely with this, you know, with governments generally to try and deal with challenges like the SDGs? Yes, and I think, again, I don't want to appear to be totally positive, but I'm positive on this one. I think they are more and more jumping in, particularly around the SDGs and around social impact. Part of it is because, you know, they put in their CSR groups, but I think part of it is because there was a, a survey done recently. I think, again, I think it was Deloitte did it. They were looking at young people and why they're not going to work in large corporations in droves like they used to. And one of the reasons is because they don't like the social license that these large corporates don't have. They don't like the fact that there isn't a social value for them to align their values with, their human values. You know, they don't go to work just to earn money. They go there as a human and they want to take all of their humanity to work. So I think the private sector are seeing that. They're seeing that this is an important piece for them to do. So they're jumping more and more into the SDGs. Also, uh, they're doing it because you know, the Asia-Pacific, such rapidly growing markets. I remember being back in the fast-moving consumer goods industry, FMCG, 10 or whatever years ago, where in the Northern Hemisphere, they were going, oh my gosh, gosh we've got to get to the Asia-Pacific because the markets are growing so fast here. If we want double-digit growth, we, we just can't get it in our developed markets. We've got to go to these developing markets. So a lot of them in the FMCG sector were moving into Asia-Pacific. I think there's more and more of that where people are saying, well, okay, well, let's work from an aid perspective in a country around the SDGs and around lifting people out of poverty because that helps them from a brand perspective. They get known and also they lift people out of poverty so they can afford their goods and services. Uh, so I think more and more we're seeing the private sector moving into this area. That's a common theme on this podcast is this idea that companies have a number of stakeholders. They have customers on one side, but they also have investors and that we've got a lot more information. We've got social media. There's a lot more transparency and they can no longer kind of hide from these issues. And it's coming through the SDGs are a great framework for these companies to, I guess, find solutions and say, look, we're working on this and then to educate the market. Are there any examples of how DFAT, the government, have engaged with companies to try and bring that together to, to be that bridge? Well, one example, we actually won a prize for a shared value award this year. We were working with Carnival Group. So Carnival Group have got cruises, taking cruises into the Pacific, and they were looking for things for their customers to do in the Pacific Islands. And the challenge they had was they were finding it difficult to find companies that could deliver the sorts of experiences, services and goods that were at a standard that their customers would would want. So we worked closely with them and the Difference Incubator from Melbourne to take uh, social entrepreneurs within the Pacific, actually it was in Vanuatu, and to work with them, I think it was about 20 of them, to work with them around the accelerator model to, to take their business idea to something that was much more ready to take then into the, the supply chains of Carnival Group. So Carnival Group were totally embedded in the whole process. So they took their customers on a, you know, on a cruise ship to Vanuatu, 
got off and then the, the customers became customers for the startups and so they went through all the lean methodology in terms of well what's your value proposition does your customer like it will they pay for it you know etc um, at the end of that a number of those startups then became clients of carnival group so it was a you know it was a win 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 we won because we were helping lift people out of poverty because we were building businesses the companies in Vanuatu were winning because they were getting revenue and a customer you know strong valuable customer and carnival won because they had some great experiences for their customers to jump up onto Vanuatu and get involved in. So I think that was a really great example of all of us delivering value and getting value. Mm, I'm so glad you brought that up as an example. We spoke to Anthea Smiths a few episodes ago and she talked oh, all about that, that You Me project. Yeah, it's, yes. it's a really yeah, great yeah. example of an interesting that Carnival has a really long history with those communities and that everybody's learning. The locals yeah. are learning about entrepreneurship, but at the same time, DFAT can almost learn from the cruise ship that's been there for so long and they have this legacy. So, yeah, yeah, shared value is really key there. Then the shared value can be for different reasons. You know, the value can be Mm. different for different companies. It's not all the same. So when we collaborated with Atlassian, for instance, actually it wasn't Atlassian, it was Atlassian Foundation. So I'm sure you know that Atlassian, they donate 1% of everything to charity and it goes to this foundation so 1% of their revenue, 1% of their technology, 1% of their time, and the money goes into the foundation. And the foundation is dedicated to education. So how do we inject innovation into education around the world? The value for them isn't necessarily that they'll get more customers or that they're finding out about their customers. It's just something that's really important to the founders. And then it becomes important to their staff. It's part of their value system that you know, the staff buy into. So I think that's a, just a different example. And I think too often we can be cynical about companies and their motivations. Even if it is personal motivation, there's a lot of stakeholders there. As you said, you've got the owners and their personal ethics. You've then got their customers and their investors. So even if it is for a purely internal sort of individual motivation, there's still a lot of impact there and it can be quite positive. So lots of linkages. If we stretch a bit wider than just EFAT, than the projects you work on. You know, you've obviously got a, a big history with innovation and I imagine you're quite a broad thinker on this stuff. I'd like to get your feeling about the Australian economy. I mean, if we look at it in terms of the stock market, ASX 200, it's dominated by miners and banks. The last mm. decade of rising population, mm. we've seen solid returns. We're doing well, but it would be naive to think this model will offer prosperity for the next 10 years and beyond. Will innovation save us? What direction do you think Australia should take? (laughs) I think we have no choice but to innovate. (laughs) I don't know what other hope we've got, to be honest. (laughs) So is it the saviour? That's probably a bit of an exaggeration, but we've just got to do it. So what direction should we we be taking? Well, the first thing I really would love Australia to do is to actually develop a framework for what needs to be done. We've got some really great programmes, some really fantastic programmes. One of them was one that um, I helped one of the previous governments to come up with, which is now called the Industry Growth Centres, but it was originally called the the precincts. And the concept there was that we actually need to draw together the ecosystem around specific sectors. People are a little afraid of picking winners, as they call it, but I call it maximising probability of success. (laughs) Mm. So, you know, what are the value propositions in Australia? What, What are we really good at? You know, mining is a good is a good example. We're pretty good at mining and we're good at mining technology. So, okay, how do we make an industry out of that and, and export all the mining technologies that we develop? And obviously that's based a lot on, on innovation. And what the industry growth centres do is for each one of those sectors is bring together the research base, the industry base, 
the regulatory base, the whole lot, to work out how to be successful and what needs to be done to be successful. What I wanted them to do is strategic technology roadmaps. And I know they've done some strategies, which is a good start, but I'd love to see a more holistic framework around those. But anyway, that's just one piece. And then you know, another piece is women in STEM. I know that the government are doing some uh, some work with the Academy, Australian Academy of Science, around a decadal plan for encouraging women into STEM. You know, that's a really great initiative. So lots of really good initiatives. But I really just think we need to put a framework together around what constitutes a solid, successful and sustainable innovation ecosystem stroke infrastructure in Australia. And so what have we done and what's missing and what do we have to do next? So that's that's something I'd love to see us do. But we obviously have to have a lot more collaboration. I set up the Canberra Innovation Network, which was basically trying to join together the bits of the ecosystem within Canberra and then fill the gaps. So we had a bit of a framework and looked at what was missing and filled some of that. And that's really changing the economy in Canberra. So how do we do that across a nation? How do we also connect the ecosystems across Australia? So I'll be talking to venture capitalists in in Silicon Valley or Beijing, and they'll say, we're so excited about what's happening in Australia, but we're not really going to engage until we can see it all joined up. In the moment, there's this city fighting with this city or competing with this city. What, What about bringing it all together? I think that's something we really need to think about. How do we draw together to get critical mass? Another piece we really need to do is bring the public with us, because I think most people are afraid of innovation. Not most people, that's an exaggeration, but a lot of people are afraid of innovation. They're afraid of what it means in terms of job losses, you know, with artificial intelligence and robotics. And a lot of the studies show that actually there don't need to be that many job losses because the jobs will change and a lot of it will be augmentation rather than total takeover of jobs. But we do need to help people skill up for the future. How do we explain that? How do we draw people who are afraid along that journey? And I don't think we've done that communication piece very well yet. So that that really needs to be done. And then there's deep tech. We really need to be building our deep tech innovation sector. And I'm on the um, investment committee of Main Sequence Ventures at CSIRO, which is all about investing. It's a $200 million fund, investing in deep tech ideas that are grounded in the research base, but then how we take them to scale and, and build whole industries around them. So I think that's something we need to do more of. I've been to Tel Aviv and you go to their incubators and accelerators and you just I'm almost on the verge of tears most of the time because the amount of deep tech they've got and they're commercializing is phenomenal and we really need to do a lot more of that in Australia. I think there's a bit of a paradox there isn't there with you mentioned Atlassian one of our you, know, you could call them our deep tech leaders but mm. rather than being lauded we've sort of got Mike Cannon Brooks almost butting heads with the government about renewable energy and I think that kind of sums up a bit of that that problem there when surely those two groups should be working a lot closer together to build that ecosystem. Mm. To me, it's a bit of a short-term, long-term problem, picking winners and looking forward. We saw that with the Asian Tigers and there's lots of a a debate there about picking winners. Mm. But surely, yeah, it's that long-term thinking. You know, as a company, you would maximise your probability of success. You will invest in the things that you know align with your brand, align with your skills, align with, you know, all the infrastructure you've got. So it makes sense for a country to do that too, particularly a country with limited resources. But back to your entrepreneurs thing, you know, I think we always want entrepreneurs in some senses to be butting heads with government because they are the radical thinkers. So if they're not butting heads with government in, in some way, then they're probably not being that radical. So I'm not concerned about that energy and climate change. All this, that's, a, that's a different issue that, you know, we, we've struggled with, obviously, for quite some time. But in terms of the issue of, of entrepreneurs, I think they still need to be a little bit on the edge. <laughs> they should be leading us and encouraging us and 
challenging us to, to be on the edge of it. And interested in CSIRO, you mentioned the deep tech work there and lots of innovation from the past, some of our best exports, Wi-Fi, plastic banknotes, AeroGuard, but CSIRO seems like the funding is kind of drifting away. Do they still have the, the potential to make leaps like this going forward? Oh, I absolutely think they do. I mean, I really like their on program. I know uh, Liza Noonan really well and really, really respect her work. And so she uh, was uh, the initiator of the ON program. That's the CSIRO ON program, which is their accelerator, which works for CSIRO, but also for the university sector. And I think they're doing phenomenal things. I remember when I first heard about it, I thought, oh, this is great. We're going to commercialise research. And I remember talking to Larry about it once. And he said, well, actually, the main reason for it is to change the culture. And he's so right. It does. I mean, we, we ran it uh, in Canberra through the Canberra Innovation Network with CSIRO. And was just amazed at how academics that went through that, some of those workshops would come out going, oh, my God, I wish I'd known this before I started my research. And I, I wish I thought about who cared about this before I started my research program. So I think they're having a catalytic impact on the commercialization of research. Absolutely. I was just at the um, awards this week. So there's an awards ceremony, a big, big lunch in Canberra. And so they were giving awards to the you know, best entrepreneurs, the best teams, et cetera, from CSIRO. And I can certainly say there's a lot of really great ideas coming out of CSIRO and certainly a lot greater understanding about the commercialization of it and the, the importance of collaborating with industry. So I think they're on a journey, but they're making some really good steps along that journey. And you mentioned looking at Tel Aviv and seeing the ecosystem that they've got built. If we lack that in Australia, do we still have that scientific knowledge? Is that something that you feel optimistic about? Well, Australia really does well. If you look at the rankings for our research, we rank really well in the OECD. What we yeah. don't rank so well in is the commercialization. So absolutely, we have the ideas. I mean, you have to then ask yourself, what are the barriers to the commercialization? And then they're varied and many. Again, you need a framework around that. And one of those might be getting more women involved <laughs> in research because they have different ways of seeing things. As a sidebar, I went to a, a female incubator in Tel Aviv and I was again on the verge of tears most of the time. I'd never been in an incubator where there were so many women. Anyway, they showed us videos of the business ideas and it just hit me so strongly that uh, we just increased GDP by at least a third by having more women involved in deep tech and then an entrepreneurship because an entrepreneur will come up with ideas around gaps they see and women see different gaps, different needs to men. So they came up with, with companies that you know, men just wouldn't have thought of. That's really, really important. And also yeah. you mentioned earlier the DFAT focus on, on using a gender lens. That's really important, certainly in the Pacific. But I think there tends to be a pushback. There tends to be a problem, certainly in the media. I'm not sure if it's actually the reality on the ground of what people think. But the Lowy Institute did a survey asking mm. Australians how much of the government's budget is spent on aid. And many people would say a number around 15% of the total budget spent on aid, which is wildly overestimated. In fact, it's hovering at, at less than 1%, I think 0.8%. How would you help explain to people that benefiting our neighbours through aid also benefits us? Well, if you look at the foreign policy white paper, you know, we're trying to build prosperity, peace and security in our region. So you know, any help you give to countries around us to lift them out of poverty is going to help with that. You know, if, if people are not in poverty, then there's a lot more peace, there's a lot more prosperity, there's safer places. Uh, so that purely by helping our neighbours is, is a big piece that's going to help us. I feel very strongly that by 
helping our neighbours through building their innovation infrastructure and building their economies and economies necessarily being future economies which are based on innovation and science and technology because if you look at it a future high growth jobs 75 percent of them need stem and 65 percent of them don't exist so you need stem science technology engineering and maths and, and entrepreneurship if we do that then we've got trading partners as well you know people to buy our stuff and let's face it australia's our market just isn't big enough we need to be thinking global and we've got this fabulous rapidly growing markets on our doorstep and markets that we can help grow and sustain their growth. Vietnam doesn't make it to industry 4.0. They, you know, there's a strong possibility they move, might move back into poverty, which would be, you know, a disaster. But if they grow, then we have these wealthy people to trade with. So it builds peace, it builds prosperity for them, and prosperity for us trading partners. And I believe that by helping them, we then build the relationships and the partnerships, which then help with security as well. We've talked about that quite a bit on this podcast about. Sure, aid has a place, but also impact investing in terms of moving capital, moving businesses and building businesses, which is the ultimate sustainable form of development, empowers Mm. people and that sort of thing. That's what I love about it, the empowerment. Mm. From a human perspective, aid that empowers people to help themselves, I think is awesome. And that's what we try to do with this innovation and entrepreneurship piece. You know, how do we help people on the ground to solve their own challenges, feel empowered, build their own businesses? I mean, if any of the listeners want to have a look at some of our videos, we've got videos of, of our entrepreneurs saying exactly that. You know, people in country in the Pacific saying, yeah, we just want to get on and do it. We want to do it through a commercial model. Thanks for your help. You know, it's great. And then almost 12 months ago, uh, you know, DFAT announced the Emerging Market Impact Investing Fund. I know you mentioned mm. sort of earlier. Is there any update on that? Or I'm not sure that if that's part of your remit. It's not my remit, although we do help a bit. But it's a fantastic idea. It's, it's a step towards DFAT trying new ways of investing because it's done grants up till now. So how do you do something different? So the option of going out to set up a fund of funds, so some sort of fund where we can fund funders, I think is a really, really good idea. I mean, we're not experts in investment, impact investing. So why not go with some people who are experts in that? And we'll learn along the way, which is another exciting piece of it. You know, we're not just doing it for the sake of doing it and seeing what impact we can have with it. We also want to learn from it so that we can do more. But in terms of an update, my understanding is that the preferred partner has been identified, but they've been just been going through some negotiations around the terms and the contract and what it actually looks like. So that's just taking a bit longer than people had hoped, I think. But then we've got, you know, the next next layer is the program we're doing, which is looking at all sorts of different vehicles, trying to explore different vehicles, grants, loans, equity etc cetera, etc cetera, that we could utilize ourselves so we're looking at we're looking at that as a program looking at that and then recently you know, the prime minister announced the pacific infrastructure fund which is a two billion dollar fund which is funding infrastructure and again that will be looking at different mixed models of uh, investments and grants and loans etc would that ever get to a point of the australian government taking equity in an enterprise or you talk about fund of fund and perhaps it's just a matter of a deeper partnership and learning and educating and getting closer to the finance side that's yet to be seen. I mean, they're doing assessments of it right now. Personally, I'm not hugely pro-governments taking equity. I think having a revenue share model, I think that can work. I might just get a little concerned when governments take an equity set because then they have a bit of a say in terms of governance and strategy and direction. And unless you've got really, really top-notch people who've got a lot of experience, that can be tricky 
for companies, for startups that have um, government with equity in them. But, you know, there's no such thing as no. There's ways of getting around it. But I'm happy with the model that we're using at the moment. So with the Global Innovation Fund, we invest in the Global Innovation Fund, put money into the investment vehicle, and then they take equity, not us. And I think that's a good model. This conversation has drifted far and wide, and that's great. I really like getting into the weeds and then sort of looking at the philosophy of the whole space. But you're certainly very busy. You've had a big, wide career. I'd be really interested in understanding how you manage your time and some sort of methods, hacks, tools that you use to manage your busy schedule. I mean, you're talking from Brisbane. You've just flown in there. How do you manage it all? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. That was a multi-million dollar question, wouldn't it be? I think, I would say that I'm happy to work you know, long hours during the week, but I really try hard to ring fence my weekends. That really helps because otherwise I just would get burnt out. And I do a lot in nature. I love nature. So that's a passion for me and it's a soul rejuvenator. So I make sure that I do that. I am incredibly lucky to have a very supportive husband who is actually retired, which is very handy because he does so much for me at home. So that makes that possible. I'm at a point in my life where my kids have both left home uh, and I miss them terribly and love them dearly. But it's great that I don't have that split down the middle because a mother I just felt was totally split down the middle forever, not doing anything properly because I wanted to be a mother and a worker. So, but I don't have that split anymore. So that helps. I think I have an intuitive capacity to prioritize. So I will prioritize. I've had to get better at that over time because you just get more and more opportunity for instance when I started going on boards and panels and things you know I just accept anything but now I'm at a point where I can be a bit more choosy which is great you see you can be a bit more choosy as you get better known and get more experience yourself yes other than that run really fast (laughs) (laughs) there is one more thing I do things I'm passionate about so I don't Mm. do stuff I'm not passionate about I mean obviously there's things I have to do like you know sign this, that, and the other, and and do briefs and whatever. But in, in my career, the pathway I've chosen has been things that I'm really passionate about, and that stimulates and generates energy. So then I've got the energy to run fast. Mm, it's interesting to hear that it's almost got easier as you've gone on, and that you've now got a husband that can help out at home, and that the kids have left home. How did you manage that when you were younger? And you did you have to decide between career and family? I did. Yes. Yeah. So for seven years, I stayed at home as a mother when my kids were born my first son Tommy I just fell completely in love with him as soon as he was born and there was no choice I just had to stay with him I was working at McKinsey at the time and you can imagine McKinsey and kids is a challenge so I wrote them a little note from Tom saying look I know you need my mummy but I need her more than you (laughs) and so I handed my notice and it was it's interesting because one of the partners one of the female partners handed her notice in shortly after that because I think it sort of said something to her too. It spoke to her. And then my second son was born two years later. So I stayed at home until they were both at school. Now, I've said several times recently that I don't know that I'd recommend that. It was fabulous. and It was fantastic for me and my kids to spend all that time together. And, you know, I educated them and loved them and had fun with them, which was all wonderful. But it was absolutely exhausting. And then when it came to going back to work, it was quite a change and I lost a lot of self-confidence it's taken me a long time to get to a level that I feel comfortable at and I think I took various jobs that that were definitely way below me because I had I didn't have that confidence and maybe I'd be further on in my career now than than I am given that seven years if I look back and and advising myself I'd say hey look keep your finger on a little little bit you know do something a bit more but I was totally besotted with my kids so yeah it was difficult (laughs) then when I went back to work it was hard because I wanted to be with them, but I wanted to 
once I was at work, I just wanted to accelerate. You know, I could see where I could go. So, yeah, it was challenging. Well, look, thank you for sharing that. I think when we talk about the future of business and we talk about investing, we can get wrapped up in go, 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 work, 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 innovation. But it's great to hear that balance is really important, that you take your weekend, which is so far removed from these Silicon Valley heads that we hear talking about their four hours of sleep and having that as your badge of honor. It's great to hear you know, that sleep is being valued a lot more and that these ideas are percolating, that that's just as important. You need to look after yourself, mindfulness, these sorts of things. So mm-hmm. that's innovation, I think, that we're innovating you know, our mindset and the workplace. Mm-hmm. When I give talks about my career, I always put one in about being a mother. And the thing I learned as a mother is that we're human. <laughs> and that's something I think worth remembering when we get ourselves all excited about what we're doing. We are we are still human. <laughs> and I think something that's become really important for me is that what is success? And for me, lifestyle is important in that because I think you can be doing mm. really well, but if your health is suffering and you're not seeing your family and you're not sleeping, is that mm. really successful? On that line, I would say I'm not portraying myself as successful. I get myself burnt out. I get myself exhausted. <laughs> you know, I don't spend enough time with my husband, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Don't spend enough time with my friends. But over time, you balance it out. <laughs> At any one point in time, it's certainly not balanced for me. But over time, I think it is. A final note. The same question I ask everybody at the end. If you were to recommend a book to someone wanting to learn about innovation and its application to aid work, what might you recommend? The one that I have handed out to a number of people when they wanted to understand open innovation is the story about uh, Procter & Gamble and how they got into open innovation and how they then drove open innovation themselves. So that's one uh, that I would I would recommend. And I think it's by... Laffy. Anyway, what I can do is I, I should have looked it up before I had this this talk. I'll send you the connection to it. Sure, I can put a link in the show notes. Uh, and it's interesting you mentioned open innovation. It's it's a term you've mentioned a few times, and it's something I actually hadn't heard of before doing some research into your background. Can you give us a, a little snapshot of of what open innovation itself is? From the perspective of fast moving consumer goods sector, open innovation is saying. You've got a whole load of R&D experts, new product development experts inside your company. But you know what? There's millions of people outside who know stuff too. Why don't you link out to them? Procter & Gamble, for instance, or perhaps it was Unilever, got about a thousand chemists. But there's millions of chemists all around the world. So why would you just rely on your thousand? That's not to say you wouldn't keep your thousand, but you might as well leverage the knowledge of people outside. Lego then used that from the perspective of leveraging the ideas of their customers so that they actually um, developed Mindstorm. So it went out to market. And then the customers who bought Mindstorm then actually developed it themselves. And at first, Lego said, oh, my God, what are they doing? They're tampering with our, our product. And then they realized, oh, goodness, they're doing some really good things with our product. Why don't we take their ideas and take them to market? That collaboration with your customers that was really being pushed forward in the open innovation model there. From an aid perspective, open innovation is saying, okay, we've got a lot of aid experts. You know, governments employ a lot of aid, aid experts, but we're not the only people with the ideas. There's actually millions and millions of people all around the world who'd have fabulous ideas that could be very different to ours. Because once you're in a certain culture, you think a certain way. I notice this in large corporates. I see it in government. You know, you become part of the culture and you think that way after you've been there a while. So it's really good to go outside and find people with different ways of seeing the challenge, different ways of finding solutions, and also people who might have a solution you'd never thought of, and it's already applied somewhere. And a a classic example is in Cadbury, we were trying to get water into chocolate. Now, water in chocolate is a water in oil emulsion. 
we didn't know a lot about water and oil emulsions, but the paint industry knows all about water and oil emulsions. So why not go and talk to the paint industry and find out what they know and draw those ideas into your business so that you can get to market a lot faster. So it's really the concept is, yes, you've got ideas. Yes, you've got great people, but there's loads of great people and great ideas out there which might help you do something either very different or something a lot faster. So sharing ideas at, at its core, breaking down silos and then yes. getting your IP out there and with the understanding that you'll get as much or more back in. Yes. That's what we're all about here on the Good Future Podcast, sharing ideas and hoping that we get more in than we give out. So let's leave it on that note because that's been a great conversation and I'm aware of not taking too much of your time. But that was a great chat and hopefully uh, if I get down to Canberra again soon and you get back there, we can catch up. Fantastic. Thanks so much for your time. All right. Thank you, Sarah.